I'm going to start with a poem. I hope you don't mind. Um, this is from a book. It's clearly my book. It has my name on the cover. It says, The World of Christopher Robin. It, Robin's not my second name, but it's a book that, of poems that I, my mother would read. And about 100 years ago, uh, it, uh, it's called Buckingham Palace. Their changing guard at Buckingham Palace, Christopher Robin went down with Alice. Alice is marrying one of the guard. A soldier's life is terribly hard, says Alice. Their changing guard at Buckingham Palace, Christopher Robin went down with Alice. We saw a guard in a sentry box. One of the sergeants looks after their socks, says Alice. Their changing guard at Buckingham Palace, Christopher Robin went down with Alice. We looked for the king, but he never came. Well, God take care of him all the same, says Alice. Their changing guard at Buckingham Palace, Christopher Robin went down with Alice. Their, go their great big parties inside the grounds. I wouldn't be king for a hundred pounds, says Alice. Their changing guard at Buckingham Palace, Christopher Robin went down with Alice. A face looked out, but it wasn't the king's. He's much too busy assigning things, says Alice. Their changing guard at Buckingham Palace, Christopher Robin went down with Alice. Do you think the king knows all about me? Sure to, dear, but it's time for tea, says Alice. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I have a couple of uh, reasons why I thought they were good. Um, it's good to lighten the mood, I think. Um, but uh, this is actually an anthology. Uh, it means that it's got two books within the one book. Uh, were two books when we were very young, and now we are six, and they were published a few years apart, and they were republished in 1959, about 30 years later. Zechariah is like that as well. Zechariah is a book which um, chapters 1 to 8 have one kind of character, and then 9 to 14 have a different kind of character, and they may have been um, published about 30 years apart. And there's some differences between the first two parts. That's just handy, but I think it's the same author, different circumstances, and therefore you have different responses. Another reason I read this poem is because I think it helps to understand how poetry and prophecy work. It doesn't work with a step-by-step -step argument. It more relates to our common experience of humanity. We uh, catch a glimpse of things. Imagine Christopher Robin at the age of about three going to see the king. And then imagine his disappointment and not understanding that he isn't actually seeing the king. We looked for the king, but he never came. Or... A face looked out, but it wasn't the king's. And the people of Israel were experiencing similar kind of disappointment. They had been back in the land for several decades now. They had rebuilt their houses, they had rebuilt the temple, God's people in God's place, but they were still under foreign rule. Zerubbabel was descended from David but only their governor, not their king. They wanted their king. They wanted the king that had been promised to them that would uh, 
save them from all their enemies. The one appointed by God. The one anointed. The Messiah. And just like in this poem, we looked for the king, but the king never came. They, the king had not come. The king who would complete the rescue. The king who would rescue them finally from that control of Babylon. Well, I'm going to deal very, very briefly with the whole of chapter 9. And I say I'm going to start verses 1 to 8 very briefly. And then verses 9, sorry, 9 and 10 will keep to the end. And then 11 to 17. Verses 1 to 8, the restoration of the land. Um, sorry. The prophecy starts with a condemnation against various cities and peoples around the nation of Israel. They're not random. Sorry, and I have a graphic here. Um, somewhere there. Okay, so... On the top right, you see Aram and Syria, and the, the three cities, Damascus, um, and I can't read it there, Hadrach and Hamath are up in that top right-hand corner. Then there was Tyre and Sidon in Phoenicia. You've heard of those. And then down the bottom, the four um, cities in Philistia. This is all part of the original promise to Abraham and to Joshua and so on of the whole land. And what telling us is really God is going to bring all of that land back under God's control. There's an interesting point too in verse 7 that God's people might include a remnant from other nations. It's just a hint that they are going to be cleansed by God in some unknown way as God promises to remove the blood from their mouths and the abhorrent things from between their teeth. In some way, God would cleanse these other countries and the people would become part of Israel. Don't know how. That's section one. Section two is 11 to 17, and I'm going to skip bits of this. Basically, verse 11 talks about the release of the people. God is fulfilling his promise because of the covenant of blood. In Jeremiah, God said how the people had committed a double evil and they would be paid double as punishment. But now here in Zechariah, they're going to be released from their waterless systems and self-sufficiency and then be paid back double in restored. And then continuing on to the victory, so far the prophecy is mostly about God being active and the people being passive. At this point, things change slightly. God is still the active one, but God is preparing the nation of Israel to be active in this war, in challenge, in defence. It talks about Judah as the bow, the top, the northern uh, tribes. Poetic license, remember, uh, and fill that bow with Ephraim. Sorry, Judah is the southern, and Ephraim is the top northern ten tribes. And the, then the whole of Israel is referred to as Zion. And they will march against uh, the sons of Greece. 
Well, I'm not going to, I really am not going to go into all those things. The point of this all is that God will save the people. God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. They are like the jewels of his crown. Restoration of the land, rescue of the people. And now let's go into the, the middle section, the return of the king. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah is a book that looks both forwards and backwards. You would know that this verse is quoted in Matthew 21. When about 500 years later, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And we have this uh, second window here, um, talks about the cult and Jesus riding that cult into Jerusalem. But Zechariah is also a book that looks backward. And I think that the, uh, something that I didn't know, and as I read this book, I, I thought, oh, this is interesting. And... Um, Anytime we talk about kings of Israel, we think about David in the background. David lived about 1,000 BC. So Zechariah, so David, 1,000. Zechariah, about 500. Jesus, about zero. Zechariah is looking forward to when Jesus comes, but he's looking backwards. And there's an incident in David's life which seems to make sense and may be the background behind this. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel, okay? Page 272, 2 Samuel 13. And we're going to whip through about six chapters, okay? You reckon you can do this? Won't take too long, really. Um, 2 Samuel 13. David is probably 50, 50 or 60. He's probably got about 10 years left to live, maybe, maybe 20. Um, he has adult children uh, who don't always behave as adults. Uh, Absalom has a beautiful sister named Tamar. Absalom is one of David's sons. Another son from a different mother, Amnon, is infatuated with Tamar. Long story short, he rapes her and then rejects her. Absalom waits two years and then murders Amnon in revenge. And then he runs away into exile. Chapter 14, Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem and eventually he's restored to his father, King David. And then in chapter 15, things begin as a revolt. The bottom of page 274, the important verse here is 2 Samuel 15. Absalom got himself chariot, horses, and 50 men to run before him. And then over the next four years, he undermined his father, King David. And eventually, he declares himself king and threatens to kill his father in a coup d'etat. David is caught by surprise, but quickly realises that... Uh, to avoid bloodshed, he needs to flee. So he is on his way out of Jerusalem, over the top of the Mount of Olives, when 
Zeba, a servant, comes along with a pair of donkeys. Now, I have a joke at this point. You should never trust a man with two donkeys. Why? Clearly, he is biased. And David shouldn't have trusted Zeba either. Um, what Zeba said was wrong. But the point here is that um, Zeba says, now anyone who reads it, oh, sorry, the king said to Zeba, why do you have these? Zeba answered, the king's, uh, sorry, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride. And so now you have this picture of the king riding out of Jerusalem in defeat. He is fleeing from his life. He has been humbled by his own son. It is a hopeless scene. The old king riding a donkey and gets worse. As he goes down the hill, there's this man, Shimei, who was a relative of Saul and never really liked um, David. And he starts cursing him and throwing stones and throwing dust at him. And David says, Let if God's told him to curse, what, what's that? You know, I can't stop him. Well, over the next few chapters, Absalom uh, continues to act despicably, uh, but eventually he's killed. And David is brought back from exile. He may have rid the same ponies on the... Uh, sorry, the... Has king with king, kingdom, a king humiliated, in danger from his own family, those who have honoured and supported him. David left Jerusalem lowly and riding on a donkey. And when he comes back, that same man that cursed him turns around and repents and, and, he, and he stops and, and even though David should have uh, punished him, he spoke peace as he came in. Go back to Zechariah 9 verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem the bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Here is the king returning to Jerusalem. He comes as one who is righteous and victorious, but not in his own power. Rather, this king rules in recognition of God's ultimate sovereignty. He's humble, riding on a donkey. And remember those chariots and horses that Absalom had brought in. Well, they will be cut off. And notice here, too, that this king proclaims peace to nations and that he will rule from sea to sea, from the great Euphrates River all the way to the ends of the earth. The kingdom 
has been expanded outside of the borders of Jerusalem. It now includes the whole known world. The whole world. And this king deserves allegiance from every person on earth. There is no question of a republic here. We can't just secede. We can't declare ourselves to be a separate state. You cannot go into exile from a kingdom that encompasses the whole world. All people everywhere are subjects of this king. In Matthew 21, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. He has already climbed the steep road from Jericho and is at the point where David received the donkeys from Ziba as he fled. But Jesus is returning to Jerusalem. He rides on a donkey. Matthew 21, verse 4. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the fall of a donkey. Over the next week, the crowds there will desert him. Something like how David departed Jerusalem with Shimei cursing him. So too, Jesus will be cursed by the crowds, and they will demand his death by crucifixion. Yet this is the same king spoken of in Zechariah, the king who will rule the world from sea to sea. this picture in Zechariah 9 of God's people rescued, restored God's place, the land of Israel, and under the rule of God's appointed king, God's people, God's place, God's rule. Well, what does that mean for me? I began with a poem which finishes with a line which reads, do you think the king knows all about me? It's a question we each need to ask. Isn't it? Not just as a three-year-old might go to the gates of Buckingham Palace and think about King Charles. Uh, we must ask it as adults who rebel against the idea that anyone else might have authority over us. Not just because we're Australians, we hate authority, but because we're humans and we don't like anyone else controlling us. But this king who rules from sea to sea deserves our allegiance and our obedience, for he has saved us. If you'll indulge me, I will finish with a poem too. The people of Israel are back in the land. They've rebuilt the temple, reset stones by hand. Otherwise, things are not how they planned. It seemed that God's promise was crumbling to sand. We looked for the king, but he never came. No one to rescue, to wipe away shame. Foreigners ruled, all tyrants the same. What hope we had was a barely lit flame. A face looked out, but it wasn't the king's. Zerubbabel's 
hands held only governor's rings. To the hope of a real king, the nation now clings, but the struggle of decades painfully stings. Centuries later, Roman soldiers and brass rule over Israel, every town, every class. The city is crammed with a Passover mass when Jesus enters the gate on an ass. The king has appeared, but here is the thing, a king on a donkey's the wrong key to sing, the daughters of Zion, palm fronds you fling. But what kind of victory does the king bring? A real king rides a horse of renown, a snow-white stallion, or a dark bay brown, with a warrior cohort marching through town, but the foal of a donkey draws only a frown. Yet a memory of David might come vaguely to mind as king fled before kin, his own son and kind. There were those who threw stones and curses unkind as slowly he dropped down the steep valley wind. Humbly he bore each insult and bruise. If God brought this curse, can I refuse? I trust my life to God, whatever he might choose. God will have victory even if I might lose. And yet, old King David took up the crown again. He climbed up to Jerusalem, speaking peace to men who'd cursed him as he fled, who'd bruised him when in weakness he rode powerless and humbled to his den. Perhaps as Jesus on that ass, those gates he slowly passed, wondered what a welcome wave a week would upset fast. Yet he in humble hope would trust the Father's vast faithful promise that all evil would outlast. That king arose again through death's defeated door, and when cloud will appear, he'll come as conqueror. We stand today in Advent, waiting weak and poor, for the righteous king to come and end the war. Do you think that this king knows all about me? If such a righteous king rule and see to see, then my shame and my failure will be very plain to see. And I must turn and cast myself upon his fair mercy. We looked for the king. The king has come. Look for the king. The king has come. Sing in two one two one seven two two one seven love divine.
in the 